Hey guys, welcome to the Pit Perspective. My name is Bree, and I'm gonna introduce you to the rest of my team. I'm Abby. I'm Vimal. I'm Meg. I'm Mads. And I'm On. Today, we are going to be discussing an interview that I did recently with Pamela Tuck. She is a Greenville native, a renowned children's author, as well as the daughter and granddaughter of Moses Teal Jr. and Sr. Um, we discussed kind of her experience throughout Greenville Public School over the years, as well as her um, family's role in the civil rights movement here in Greenville. And we will be discussing some public school disparities that we do see today. So um, just to formally introduce myself, um, my name is Bree. I am a member of the podcast, The Pit Perspectives. Um, it kind of came out of a research course that we have here at ECU. And um, our goal here is to kind of get um, some background on some of the history of Pitt County um, that we haven't really gotten through a lot of um, historical review. Um, basically, you know, um, Pitt County historians, um, ECU historians um, have talked to us and, you know, have also mentioned the fact that there isn't a lot about marginalized communities and their sides of the stories here in the county. Um, a lot of it is focused on the growth of um, Greenville and the economy of Greenville and stuff like that in the university. And we kind of just want to get a perspective um, on the side of history that hasn't really been covered quite yet. So um, that's our goal here just to give you a little general overview and um, just to you know kind of get us started if you want to kind of give a general background of your upbringing here in Pitt County um, up to up until your career so the audience can get to know you a little bit better sure sure well my name is Pamela Tuck um, my maiden name was uh, Till so I, I came from the Till family, which, you know, I, as far as I know, I was born and raised in Greenville, North Carolina. And I came from a family of civil rights activists. Um, my grandfather, Moses Till Sr., um, was actually, he was not just a civil rights activist, but he was a storyteller. You know, so I grew up, you know, listening to him tell stories because he, because he was the master storyteller in our family. So in listening to him tell all these stories, you know, these traditional stories, folk tales and things like that, he also included some of our family stories because we were or they were a part of the civil rights movement. And so growing up, I heard these stories of the different things that they did to bring about equality, you know, in Greenville. Um, and in growing up, I also heard some of my dad's stories and the experiences that he went through as a teenager living through the, the civil rights movement. And so growing up as an only child, I had a lot of grand, I had a lot of cousins, but as an only child, um, I entertained myself by reliving these stories and reading and writing my own poetry and stories. And I would share them with my grandfather and my dad and, and getting their approval as being a storyteller. It just kept me going. Um, and as I became older, you know, I had my own experiences growing up in Greenville, North Carolina. I went to school in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, and I'm in uh, Pennsylvania now, but growing up, I gained an interest in writing and storytelling. And once I was an adult married, you know, with children, um, I had an interest in writing stories for children. So in, do in doing that, my uh, late husband actually found out about Lee and Low Books, which is a publishing company in New York, and how they, they wanted to do exactly what you're doing. They wanted to tell those stories, you know, of marginalized groups and um, different ethnic, group, ethnic groups who have been overlooked. And so my husband said, why don't you tell your dad's story? Because, you know, he heard me telling 
the story of my dad's experiences in desegregating the school systems back in the 1960s. And so I gave it a try. I interviewed my dad, you know, from a writer's perspective instead of from a daughter's perspective. And I wrote his story, just a little snippet of what it was like as a teenager um, trying to desegregate a formerly all white school during the civil rights movement and how he used his type and talent to help break racial barriers. And in writing that story, the story won the New Voices Award. It got published and now that story can be shared across generations. So that's kind of like the path that I took briefly, you know, and how I incorporated family storytelling and my family history into writing. That's awesome. And it sounds like you have such a, a rich family history here in Greenville. And I'm um, hearing that writing is kind of a generational or storytelling is a generational thing for you guys. Um, that's really awesome to hear. And um, it sounds like, you know, um, schooling and, you know, just um, your experiences here in public school had an influence on both you and your dad um, quite a bit, you know, when it comes to your writing. I read in your biography that, you know, um, in classes and stuff like that and um, during your time in public school, you would do like short stories and poetry, as you mentioned. So um, with that having such a large effect, um, that's, you know, why we wanted to look to interview you today, um, because this episode's focus kind of is on the history of desegregation within Pitt County's public school system up until now and its effects on the disparities of public and private schools in the area. Um, so after some research with fellow team members, just kind of, you know, for a general overview for our audience, um, we went through some archives and other records and we discovered that there was a very late movement to integration made by the county and that public schools were not truly integrated until about the 70s and even that um, some organizations throughout the county have pointed out that the effects are still present um, even up until 2015 an example being um, the 2015 Everett versus Pitt County Board of Education um, so Basically, another piece of information that we found that was really interesting as well is um, after the explosion of private schools surrounding the city of Greenville, um, most likely due to, you know, the suburban white flight, um, we found that um, even though um, the white population makes up, you know, compared to other ethnic groups in the county makes up a large portion of the county, um, about 48% of public school students are black, while only 38% are white and 10% are Latino. So um, after kind of taking in all that information, we decided that um, speaking to you as your grandfather and your father had a pretty big role in those early movements would be, you know, the best option to kind of get to the root of things. So my next question for you is how did um, um, your grandfather and your father, um, what was their involvement in the desegregation of public schools in Pitt County and what kind of role did they play within the initial steps in the movement? Yes. Well, initially my grandfather, um, well, my, uh, talking to my dad, um, normally it was just known that once children started, well, it would probably be junior high, middle school for some people now, but it was junior high for them. But once they had to start ninth grade, they all had to go to a, a, a certain school. And that school was a school for black children. And what my, the, the issue that my grandfather had at that time was that his children had to pass a white school in order to get to the black school that they were assigned to attend. And during that time, you know, my grandfather, they noticed that the quality of education wasn't the same. You know, the books, um, sometimes the books were either outdated or they didn't have enough books. The schools, you know, just the, the general environment wasn't, you know, equal. 
that just made me think about what like Brie and Bimmel were saying about how like the quality of education isn't the same, but like society still has these standards of like making it to higher education, and that is something that hasn't changed. Like she was talking about how her grandfather was dealing with that with his kids, and now it's still kind of something that we're struggling with. Yeah, it's definitely something too that you can notice in between looking at schools nowadays. You can see areas that are of a lower um, socioeconomic standing. You can see the difference in the quality of education that's provided to those students, and that does definitely push through um, in like the quality of what they're getting out of their education as a whole. During times when uh, schools were segregated, I feel like um, further education wasn't as emphasized or important. So um, it didn't like set you up for failure as much back then, in my opinion, going to a public school with a lower socioeconomic status. But now, when like a degree is almost mandatory to have like not a successful successful life, but to make it further in whatever career you're chasing, degrees are important. And with the public school statistics and the conversion rate to college students and the degrees they get, like these sort of public schools and the lack of funding is really detrimental towards the students. And at that time during the summer, you know, my grandfather decided that he was going to protest because it didn't make sense, you know, just naturally looking at things to have his children, you know, bust, let's just say 12 miles when another school was so much closer that was a better school anyway. And so during the summer, um, he actually uh, filed a lawsuit in the name of one of my father's older brothers. Um, usually that's what they typically do because the plaintiff, ha the plaintiff has to be a student, you know, and not the parent because that student is the one who's actually going to attend the school in question. And so they, he filed the lawsuit, um, Till versus Pitt County Board of Education. And so in doing that, uh, they had to wait maybe the next year because they, they tried to you know, compromise with my grandfather. They tried to get him to drop the lawsuit and things like that. And they offered to, from, you know, just from what I've gotten from my dad's oral, you know, history is that they offered to pay him gas money and to compensate him if he would just take his children to this further school away. But, you know, just anything to kind of just keep the pressure off, because, of course, it was already ruled, you know, by the Civil Rights Act that, you know, separate schools were already unconstitutional and based on racial discrimination. But some, even though that law was passed, some schools were still slow in moving and acting on that. And some of the schools in Pitt County were, you know, slow. Um, just what she said right there about how it was like unconstitutional for them to be separate, but some schools were like slow into getting into desegregation. It just goes to show that like, um, when there's a new law passed about this stuff, it like takes a while to like actually deconstruct the systems that like cause this segregation or just things in place that um, move systemic racism forward. Like it's hard to just like deconstruct it with a law. You have to like go further and do a lot more than just um, legislature. I think the fact that they're willing to pay for gas money and stuff like that shows that there is no lack of financial resources at the time. They just really didn't want them going to the same school. They could have easily put that money in towards buying new books. 
I mean, gas to go 12 miles every day is, in my opinion, pretty expensive sum. And cars weren't as efficient back then, so like, they have the money. They're choosing not to do it like of their own free choice. So in that part of it, it was during the summer, my grandfather actually opted not to let his children go to school at all. And that wouldn't work. They, they, they said, no, you, you can't do that. <laughs> so what they did, I think they, they ended up going to another school. I think it was still um, a black school, but they ended up going to another school. Um, and they had to wait until the following year when they would actually go and go to court about this lawsuit. So I think the following year, it may have taken a year before my father and his brothers were actually allowed to, based on the lawsuits, to enroll into a formerly all-white school. So those were the first initial steps. My father was one of, and there were other children, Black children in the neighborhood, who were brave enough to start integrating. But during this time, from my understanding, the courts were giving Pitt County Schools a chance to come up with a plan you know, to consolidate, consolidate, integrate these school systems. So they were slow in coming up with these plans. Some of the plans that they came up with, my grandfather and the other uh, families that were, you know, following this lawsuit did not agree with the, the plan. And so it was just a matter of going back, you know, back and forth with following, you know, the different, uh, I guess, plans or whatever the requirements were that the, the black families were requesting and the schools were uh, supposed to agree to. So my father's initial steps was going to this all white school and he had his experiences there. But after uh, so many months, maybe years, it was it came back the following year that the schools were still not they were failing to line up to what they were supposed to be doing. I did do a little research myself. And when they came back, they found out that the, the schools that the freedom of choice plan was failed because they didn't provide enough substantial increase in the number of black students. So they weren't allowing an, an, enough black students. And they also failed to employ and assign teachers and school personnel on a non-racial bias. So they weren't hiring, you know, black teachers. And then they failed to take administrative steps to encourage the community support in this freedom of choice plan. And so the schools were kind of like dormant or slow in moving towards this integration idea or integration. And so during this time of waiting, my dad actually ended up graduating. <laughs> from an all formerly all white school. But then by the time he graduated, they came up with this consolidation. So instead of uh, students going to the black schools or the white schools, they ended up building a new school for everybody to go to. And I guess it just kind of pleased different people in certain areas. I'm not really sure how everything you know went with that. But what my dad was saying was that this the lawsuit, if I read it correctly, during that time period, was left in the jurisdiction of the court. So they never really finalized my grandfather's lawsuit. It was still pending. So by the time you got to this lawsuit or you read the lawsuit of Everett back in 2015, this lawsuit that was filed back in 1964-65 by Moses Till against Pitt, Pitt County Board of Education was still pending. It never was settled. It was never settled. And what happened was the new uh, issue that arose, you know, in 2015, 
they found that and thinking that this aligned with what was going on presently, they brought that up and they decided to consolidate again these two cases and and settle the whole thing. But honestly, the case from 1965 was never really settled. It was just consolidated and brought into this new era to kind of, in my, case, my opinion, dismiss it. Yeah, there was no motivation behind that integration. They just built a new school. I'm guessing it was predominantly black and they didn't really try and mix the schools together. And in my opinion, what does the what that does is just leaves the old school still kind of segregated and gives opportunity for one or two schools worth of students to finally be integrated. It sounded to me like um, they were just trying to like uh, not satisfy them, but they were trying to just like get the um, give them whatever they needed to get them to be quiet, I guess, because it sounded like that they didn't want to actually give them what they wanted and they were just trying to like offer all these um, other things that would satisfy them but the people were like no we actually want to be integrated and so they're like okay we'll just we'll just make a new school and they were just trying to do anything except for give them what they wanted yeah this shows though with what she's talking about and what's the 664 and the statistics now that there's no accountability in the school system for discrimination really unless well against discrimination unless it's like completely outright discrimination and the fact that there was like another case filed in 2015 on the same premises and if you don't like know about the case um Everett versus like the Pitt County Board of Education it was talking about how the schools still aren't fair they pulled up the same statistics that we read about and they actually ended up losing that case um Board of Education won saying that they did put enough plans in to get in the schools integrated but I mean between 1965 and 2015 that's 50 years, like, there shouldn't be another case being filed about people still thinking that it's not integrated. Yeah, like, leaving those cases, like, dormant just enables the Board of Education to keep doing what they want and keep allowing these segregation in the schools. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, even after our research, I did not realize that. I'm sure you saw my face <laughs> whenever you mentioned that to me. And um, that's very surprising. It seems like a lot of things um, concerning integration in this kind of movement, um, even the current one, has kind of been swept under the rug um, by the county over time. And um, you know, even though by the 70s, uh, most, you know, records say things were quote unquote fully integrated. Um, I'm sure as you grew up through Pitt County, um, you kind of noticed some of the effects over it um, over time. So um, how did this experience attending public school in Pitt County um, kind of affect your um, experience as you noticed, you know, the effects of integration? And um, did you notice anything um, like that as you kind of, you know, went through your time from um, grade school up until high school? Yes, um, actually, yes, I, I did. Well, coming from such a strong, you know, civil rights activist family, um, they were very in tune with anything that remotely resembled uh, discrimination. You know, and so growing up, you know, I really I have to admit, I did have some very, very nice 
teachers, you know, in elementary school. I did have issues here and there, you know, where I did feel either singled out or, you know, discriminated against. And I had the support of my family, especially my mother and father, who, like I said, they were very in tune to anything that resembled any type of discrimination for me. And they would go to the schools and try to address the issues. I never experienced, you know, um, discrimination and maybe the 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 painful um i don't experience that my mother and father went through i kind of knew how to handle certain things and i experienced it more so i think from the students rather than teachers and then by the time i got to high school um i started experiencing things and i learned strategies i learned strategies from my mom and my dad because there's some things that can be hidden and I'll just give one example if I can. I was in an art class at one time and I had a friend, she was a good friend of mine and she was, um, but she was white and you know, I was black and with art, you know, that's opinionated. You really can't grade, you know, art, you know, tests are one thing, but someone's ability, that's kind of hard to put a grade on that. It's all opinionated. And so I noticed that, you know, my artwork compared to my friend's artwork was always less always less than hers. And, you know, not to say that mine was all that great, but I, I noticed that it seems like I always got a B and she would get A's. And so instead of just, just accepting it, instead of, you know, getting mad, you know, about different things, I was proactive in how, how to approach the teacher about this. And so I went to the teacher and I just asked her, I said, what do I have to do to get an A in this class? So that made her aware that I see what you're doing. I'm coming to you to find out what I'm missing in my work that is not up to par with you. So now I have an opportunity to do those things and see how you are going to respond. And after that, I started making A's. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just, you know, I learned, I guess, from my experiences and also from my parents, it's just, you know, not to just accept things you know for what the, what you're given but to challenge those things and to challenge it in a way that is not um combative or you know anything like non you know non-violent way and that's something that my dad learned because he knew that when he attended this all-white school that he had to be humble he had to be non-violent he had to do everything he could to stay in the school not to give him any excuses to kick him out. So it was like educational um, experiences, but qualities and traits that I learned from their experiences that actually took me through life too, because you can carry those those traits on jobs and other places outside of the educational network. So I hope that answered the question. <laughs> so after hearing that, and from my own personal experiences and from like other minorities I know, it's really sad that we have to keep that those thoughts and strategies in our mind and day-to-day -day life and our entire life. Wow. One thing people don't talk about a lot is like the bravery it takes. She mentioned it before. She said, you know, the brave African-American students who wanted to integrate. Like wanting to integrate, you know, it's, it's easy to think that, but actually stepping out being like the first person to go to an all-white school I mean, I couldn't imagine doing it. It seems really scary to me. It's dangerous. It was dangerous. It's dangerous. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing with that too is like being yourself generally. 
because being in an all-white space, especially back then, and even now, like, I have to code switch, and I can't talk about certain things or make people uncomfortable, and it's like, why do I have to do that? And why do the rest of us have to do that? Yeah, that kind of goes back to the bravery thing, too, that Vimal mentioned, just the bravery that it takes to confront people about it. I mean, she went to her art teacher and said, why am I getting B's? Or, like, how can I get an A in this class? And that's something that a lot of people just don't think about whenever they're not going through it on that day-to-day basis. So the bravery that it takes to be someone who can come up and confront people for their microaggressions and for the things that they shouldn't be doing, um, it's just crazy to think about. Um, so basically one of my last few questions for you is, you know, you and your family obviously had, um, some impactful experiences with public school in the county. So how did that kind of influence you to where you are today? Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, the experiences that I had, you know, even with, I had, I had a lot of support from my family and my teachers. You know, and like I said, I had very good teachers, you know, when I was in elementary school. And that I think, and with my family support, I think that kind of laid the foundation for me. I came from a family of storytellers. And I actually won my very first poetry contest, I think, in second grade. And so having that recognition and that um, praise from teachers and family and friends encouraged me to keep writing. And so as I kept writing, I kept getting recognized and different teachers would comment, help me become a better writer. And it just followed me throughout my my life. And writing has always been a way for me to express myself. You know, at times that I, I'm in a loss of words or in, in, in relationships or friendships and I don't really know what to say or how to deal with things, I would write, you know, sometimes my feelings out, tear it up because, you know, it, sometimes the way it comes out is not the way you want to present it. <laughs> But it gave me a chance to at least get it out, you know, and then think about things. So in growing up, you know, my schooling, the, the, the relationships and friendships and the guidance that I received from my family, my friends, my teachers, it was enough to encourage me to believe in myself. And then becoming, like you said, uh, you know, a writer, um, when I won that um, first place or when I won that award with uh, Lee and Lowe Books, it kind of took my mind back to second grade. You know, when I won my first poetry contest and here as an adult, I'm winning this award for a book and there it's all connected to writing. And so it's like, you know, paying it forward with continuing to write, not just, you know, for my own benefit, but like you were saying, you know, it's so important for young people, you know, especially those that come from ethnic groups where, you know, your, your stories may not be heard, the unsung, unknown voices. It, to me, my goal now is to encourage and inspire and empower them at young ages. This was a really great discussion, and I really learned a lot about Ms. Tuck's experiences and a lot more about Greenville and Pitt County. If you want to learn more about her father's story, check out her book, As Fast as Words Could Fly, detailing his experiences in school and with his life. She also has other books published talking about her experience as a mother, among other works, both for adults and children. If you want to keep up with the podcast, Follow us on Instagram at the.pit.perspective.